Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Love of the Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by David Agano, aka at Undervalue on Twitter, better known to his followers as sharing wisdom on sporting directors and recruitment, having profiled over 75 sporting directors to date. David, welcome to the show. Greetings. Glad to be glad to be on here. It's been a long time coming. <laughs> a while six months in the making? Five, six months in the making. That sounds right. That sounds yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, pit stop in DC. Yeah, it blows my mind. That was it was only in July, but then it's like, man, July feels like four months ago in itself, you know. But yeah, yeah, that was that was cool to meet you and Mahir there. Uh, a wild goose chase around the Lincoln Memorial, <laughs> much much akin to Chelsea and Manchester United's fruitless pursuit of Frankie Dion's this summer. But uh <laughs> Careful, as, we, careful. <laughs> as we begin with every podcast, David, you know, um, we begin by asking the guests their earliest football memory. And for you, I'm interested to hear, what was your earliest football memory? Oh, man. Whoa. Uh, so my, I have two, but that's, that's not a, a legitimate answer because the first one is always the first one. I'm trying to think, uh, I know it was the World Cup. Um, it might be, it might be Baggio missing the penalty. Um, just going back that far. I mean, I wasn't. I mean, I'm. A, I was born in the United States. Uh, it, it was American football and basketball. Those are the only two. In fact, it was really only basketball. That's the only Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen. That's all I watched. But if I remember correctly, I think that that one was uh, the World Cup in L.A. Is that right? Yeah, the Rose Bowl, um, I believe. Yeah, the Rose. Yeah, the Rose Bowl. I remember him missing that and his uh, mullet with the, <laughs> the 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 glorious haircut and him crying and, or you know I just yeah that that's probably my first full blooded memory. Not the happiest of memories. No, no, but you know it's funny. The older I get, and the more I uh, dig back and peel back the layers on sport the more i appreciate this you know what if you're really serious about sport you 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 need to chase the pain you need to chase the suffering because that is where the true champions are uncovered um yes you're you're gonna have the you're gonna have you should have moments of glory and moments that you know this is why i suffered for so long You'll, you'll get those moments but the painful moments especially if you're lucky, you can see it in others, can be instructive for you as you go on your path. Speaking of paths, I mean, David, you've been on your own. Um, you've been on your own one. Um, you're better known to those in the industry as at Undervalue on Twitter, where you post some absolutely fantastic stuff regarding recruitment, regarding sporting directors. And if you don't mind me, I have a quote here I want to pull up from your sure. 11 questions project. The pursuit of wisdom in any walk of life quickly reveals what you think you know. It's not nearly enough to get to where you want to go. I mean, where did this curiosity stem from to pursue a deeper knowledge about recruitment and consequently sporting directors in football? Yeah, it's a great question. I have to be careful to keep the the full answer compact, concise. Uh, so I grew up in America, United States, and I played American football. Always, I mean, I just, so I have three kids, um, the oldest is seven. So I have younger kids and I just tell my wife all the time. I'm like, good luck. She's like, what do you mean? Good luck. I'm like, 
I'm not telling these kids that they have to they have to learn uh, academics and study because <laughs> the only reason why I did it as a child was so that I could play sports. I, the only reason why you're talking to me in a in my office right now is because um, I was able to link. Okay, if I learn what they're teaching me, I get to play football. Those like that's how my mind works. Still works that way, sadly. Uh, you know, to this day, but. For me, athletically, when I was an athlete, um, I was a late bloomer. Um, I had the drive, the passion. I think I was tactically smart enough. Uh, but athletically, physically, I was late. Late. December birthday. So, I, like, just late. And um, I knew that I was as good, if not better, than a lot of my peers uh, in American football. But I wasn't getting the outward um, approval. So in spite of all that, I still, I mean, when I look back and I shake my head, I was truly fortunate and blessed. Uh, I, I made a career out of it still, still made a career out of it, despite those shortcomings. And um, I was offered <laughs> multiple times uh, in my playing career, David, 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 you need a coach, you need a coach, you need a coach, you need a coach. Uh, you'd be a great coach. And I told myself, never. <laughs> I would never coach professionally i will only entertain coaching my kids or my kids uh friends or mates because i know i had it not that i know i've witnessed the sacrifice that coaches make and i knew that i wasn't i wasn't ready for that i wasn't man enough for that if that makes sense because the coaches and the managers as a side note coaches managers on a, I'm going to say professional, but it doesn't necessarily need to be strictly professional. Those are, that is the hardest, most visible, um, accessible leadership um, position in our world. We don't get, we don't have access to presidents and prime ministers. Most of us don't, right? We don't have access to generals uh, of armies or uh, Steve Jobs' past, but we don't have access to Bezos or Elon Musk. Most of us don't, right? But who do we have access to that is in a high-profile leadership position? High-profile leadership position. Coaches. NBA, basketball, Premier League, Serie A. Those are the leaders that um, are the most accessible and, by default, the most criticized. So I knew, for me, after playing, giving everything, I mean, overcoming knee surgeries and this or that, I just knew that I didn't want to be a coach, but I've always been fascinated by why did I make it? Like, I mean, I'll be honest. I don't think I was even that good. I just wanted it more than the others. So if you look at, say, a a Tom Brady in American football, or even actually, ironically, you look at Roberto Baggio. He was good, right? I mean, generational talent. However, I think he... I think he um, ruptured his uh, ACL or at least two or three times. And you read some of those stories about the rehab in the 90s, 80s, 90s, what these guys had to go through. I mean, I'm sitting here. I had my knee surgery uh, when I was playing 2005, and it was infinitely easier. I say easier with uh, quotation marks with respect, but it, I had way more resources and ability to come back faster. So to answer your question, uh, I have always been fascinated by recruitment. I, I mean, since I played. Because I wanted to know why the players, and I don't want to drop too many American football stars of the 90s, but why is, why is Jerry Rice good? Why, why was he so much better than all the other ones? 
because he worked his tail off and he worked on this. He worked on this specifically. Why are the New England Patriots so good yet they don't? I mean, I don't think they've drafted in the top 10, you know, for American sports fans in over a decade. But why are they consistently good? That's what got me on this path. And then to get specifically into um, football, um, you know, candidly, I joke, but candidly, sorry. When you get to be of a certain stature in business, you have too many phones. So you try to get to a place where you don't have any phones. I'm on that path right now, but uh, sorry about that. Uh, I, I jokingly asked myself, before I did that 11 questions project, I jokingly um, was asking myself during COVID and, and watching uh, ESPN Plus, Plus and watching the Danish Superliga, how hard is it to be a sporting director? Like, I mean, other than having contacts, I know that's hard. You know, uh, that's hard fought, hard earned, right? To have the network. But at the end of the day, you just pick the best player, right? Or best players, right? So um, that 11 questions project was my Trojan horse. I wanted to see if I could access the footballing industry and get knowledge from those who either, well, I think, I believe the majority of those 115 plus people were outsiders. They weren't, say, um, they didn't play academy football for Chelsea or whatever. They were analysts or um bloggers or people on football twitter who broke you know who broke through so that project was more so to find out like okay what do i not see what like what am i not getting what am i not seeing and then after doing that project which i mean the book is if you dig you can download it um, but the blog is still up the blogger blog is still up what i realized is like you know what like this might seem crazy but like i'm gonna even push harder on this because recruitment is the most secure way and there's there's different silos or departments of recruitment but recruitment is the most bulletproof way to improve any club yes you can wait for a uh, a very uh well well-funded uh, takeover um uh, from your list of american uh, investment firms or state-backed uh, investment funds or what have you. But if you if you just want to improve your club, the best way to do it is re- recruitment. How? Do you develop players from the academy? Do you use data to find undervalued players? Do you use some combination of both? And that, I mean, there's three or four questions in one there, but that singular concept is what, I mean, if I didn't have a day job, um, I could spend the next... 15 20 years sharing on twitter exclusively just what i find you know so i i think i hope that answers your question but that's what i was looking for is just like am i am i initially what am i missing and then once um that door was opened i said okay like why is this so hard and there's multiple reasons when i say so hard i mean that with uh, with respect to context of each clubs and you know their situations but that's what drove me down that path. Like, why why are we messing up on recruitment so much across the globe? Whether it's club with the the budget of say a Chelsea or a club with a budget of me, you know, where they have zero <laughs> budget to to get players. Does that make sense? It does, of course. And you have one overarching guy who would be overseeing all of this recruitment, the mysterious mythical figure that is a sporting director. 
In your own words, David, after all this research, how would you define the roles and responsibilities of a sporting director? Wow, that is that is an easy question, but then that question that is easy is splintered and it's repurposed and retitled, relabeled depending on the culture of the club, the the country of the club, and the expectation. I would say in general terms, the sporting director is, for me, from what I've researched and what I see that works best, the sporting director is the first lieutenant of the ownership. That basically means that he is the one who oversees the culture and the, I'm going to call it the talent pathway of every dimension, every department of the club. So whether that is the cleaning staff, whether that's the physios, whether that's players, management, um, vendors, uh, sponsors, the sporting director is the first lieutenant, first mate. He is the one who ownership says, you know, just for example, David, we want to make sure that we have a, a, a culture of constant improve, improvement, Kaizen, in our, in our club. I need you to implement that across the, the entire spectrum. Okay. So whether that is making sure that um, for the academy and, and you set up that all the all of your, um, let's call it, students or players are in class and they're making sure that they're meeting their boards, their requirements, or is making sure that you only hire managers or anybody who touches your players that has a, they have to have a positive attitude, they have to have certain uh, certifications. It it can be much more dip, uh, difficult or not difficult. Uh, it can be much more differentiated than that or more specific uh, depending on the magnitude of the club. But to me, that is that is what I have come to um, decide as far as what that sporting director role is. Because in essence, I know that I write about and research uh, sporting directors, but good sporting directors aren't good unless they have good ownership. It, it, it really, you can't, you can't separate the two as good as Monchi is. He's had an owner and a board who has supported him. And when I say good, obviously that's relative, um, you know, to that situation, but you can't have a great sporting director and a misaligned board or owner. It won't, it won't work. I mean, using Monchi as an example, when he went to AS Roma, that's what happened. You have a club that is good. I mean, Roma, if you look at transfer market, and just as far as their youth academy, it is, I don't want to piss off <laughs> my Italian friends. They're top three or four at worst, at worst. They, they churn out talent. Um, they're very strategic and usually very sound at recruitment. But then they had Monchi and then had Palotta and they had all these different things. And then it's Rome. So you have that churn, you know, that, um, that I can't think of the word, but you just have a lot of expectation and missed targets and it didn't work. So to me, again, just to be clear, sporting director is the first lieutenant of the ownership. Now, for a specific club, that might mean different things, but that is his job. His job is to make sure that the club culture flows through everything and if we're only talking about a sporting director that deals with recruitment he needs to have an idea of the identity of the club 
the identity of that ownership wants of the club may might be more important to a degree than the actual identity of the club as well. So that's that would be my answer. And Manchi being one of 75 plus quote unquote successful sporting directors, which you've reviewed and analyzed and put out on Twitter to the masses, David. I mean, what are some of the most consistent reoccurring themes that you've noticed from your researchers, sporting directors? You mean about Monty or just in general? In general, about the 75 plus, which you've researched. It's a good question. And you're not going to like the answer because it's, I mean, it, it, it is, it is so boring that when I, when I share these threads and people love them, I mean, I had people DMing me. I love the thread. I'm just laughing because they all say the good ones. They all say the same thing. They just say it in a different language. They say it in a different context, but it's the same thing. It is a hundred percent about fit and alignment. A hundred percent. If you, if there is not fit as far as, okay, we want to, um, we want to sign, let's just, well, let's, let's have fun. Let's, let, we want to sign Cristiano Ronaldo. Okay. Does he fit our playing style? No, but he's available. That conversation alone, the sporting directors that are good, whether it's Christoph Freund, whether it's Manchi, whether it's Simon Messman in Norway, whether it's um, uh, Jesper Fredberg in uh, Denmark, uh, whether it's Pietro Accardi in uh, Empoli, at Italy, in Italy. If you don't know who you are and what you do, you're, you're essentially asking yourself to be relieved of your duties sooner than you what you would like. Uh, so... The that is tenant number one, fit and alignment. We have to have a defined playing style. We have to have a defined, I'm going to call it, I don't want to say outcome because that really makes it um, binary. I don't necessarily want to do that, but what are our objectives? What are we chasing? So who are we? Why are we chasing for European places or to win the league or to just develop players and do our best? When you look at a, a club like FC Norseland, and they're a little bit different because they they actually, I think it's almost a month ago now, they split their sporting director role up into three, which is another. So, and forgive me if I start talking in tangents here, because um, not only do I really uh, research sporting directors, but I'm also very, very, very interested and very, very obsessed about general managers in American baseball, basketball, and the NFL. All that means, as far as my undervalued Twitter account, all that means is that I'm looking at what works in three other sports at a high level. And what you see in American baseball, and you see it some in football, uh, American football, is they're taking that sporting director, general manager role, and they're, they're breaking it up. They're, they're breaking it up even more. And when you look at FC Norseland, FC Norseland, um, I think without a doubt is one of my favorite clubs. They obviously they do what they do with Right to Dream and the uh, the Academy in Ferrum there in Denmark, but they have sold out. They are developing players and they are developing them to win. And they are not going. I mean, they might sign a twenty something, a thirty something year old player for a specific gap. Their goalie uh, Andreas, I think it's Andreas, Andreas Hansen. They signed this. Um, earlier this year because their 18-year-old goalie, Emmanuel Ogura, it probably wasn't best for him to be starting. Not because he wasn't good enough, but because, I mean, can you imagine being 18 years old and starting 
uh, being the starting goalkeeper at one of the biggest clubs in Scandinavia. Some are cut out for it sooner than others. The point is, is that it wasn't best for his development. They decided that. Uh, you're going to sign players of a certain age, but they're going to play the young. I think this is the, I want to say, third or fourth year that they have led uh, not just Scandinavia, but Europe and age, um, player age, uh, average age. And they took their sporting director role because they also have a women's team. They took their sporting director role and they split it into three. They said, hey, I forget the gentleman's name, but hey, you're going to be over the women's sports or sorry, women's football. And then they took uh, the remaining two guys and they bought Jans Larson back. He had been on the board. They put him back as the quote unquote sporting director. And then they took uh, uh, Michael Hemersam, who had been acting sporting director, and they put him over the academy and the youth setup. So you see, you see, you see that the clubs that are intent on recruiting their way in a way that is fruitful and efficient and repeatable for them, they double down on what works. They know what their playing style is. I also did a longer thread on um, uh, Fleming Peterson, the manager for SC Norseland, and uh, what how they develop players and what their, um, I'm going to call it their ethos is around it, is diabolical because anybody else could do it, but nobody commits to it. You know, it, it's not something that is, um, dare I say, unattainable. So to answer your question, I, I mean, fit and alignment and identity. If you can, I mean, I could add more to it, but if you have fit with who you, whether it's managerial or player or technical talent, if you have a fit as far as who you surround yourself with as a sporting director, but then you are very, very keen on your identity um, it makes it really, really hard to fail if you are giving time and resources, i.e. money, uh, to make decisions. One of Victor Orta at Leeds is one of my favorite sporting directors because he's very candid. Most sporting directors are not candid. <laughs> if I've looked at 75 plus, I would say majority of them do not want to rock the boat. Victor Orta, he can't not rock the boat. That's just how he's wired. And he is very adamant. I, that player is a great player. He's not for us because of X, Y, Z. And when you can invert the decision-making into why is this player not our type of player, it'll make it to where when you see a player that is your player, you will move heaven and earth to get that player and you will reap the, the, the dividends. What makes it even more interesting than you touching it briefly there, David, is that all these different sporting directors are playing different games. You know, some are going for domestic success. Others are going for European qualification. Others are looking to stave off the threat of relegation. There's a bracket, I would have to say, of clubs, which I would be very interested for you to go speak about a bit more. And they would be those player development clubs or player development polishers. I'm speaking about the likes of your Bilbao's, Dortmund's, Atlantis. Yeah, um, do you you just want to talk me to talk about them in general or just in general. Yes. Some of the specific principles that are going on a play. Yeah. So uh, for me, those are my favorite types of clubs simply because the success that we, we see them having on the pitch is because they decided long ago to be different. 
So when you look at uh, Dortmund, yes, I mean, they were, and forgive me for you German Bundesliga historians, uh, they, I mean, they've always been one or let's just say 1A or two or three at worst. Everybody's always been behind Bayern, but again, that's a different, that's a different podcast. Uh, they knew that economically that they couldn't fight with Bayern. So whether it's uh, Sven Mislintat, who I've uh, profiled before, uh, or um, uh, I think it's just Michael, Michael Zork. Uh, I don't know if it's Mikhail or Michael Zork. They have said, hey, as long as we make Europe every single year and we make sure that we place third or higher, we are going to have a revenue stream that we can leverage to not just be different, but to take advantage of market efficiency. So I'm going to stop and say and give a warning here. Uh, I'm a financial and insurance guy. So if I start to say things that don't always jive with um, uh, football and recruitment, just stop and say, what does that mean, David? Because I, I can go in and out of it really quickly. And I, I don't want to lose anybody. I don't want to lose you. But that market, if all a market inefficiency is, is uh, use Erling Holland as, as an example. It's, it's the ability to see talent that is not being given one key resource, whether it's Jaden Sancho or Jude Bellingham or um, my mind's going blank now, uh, Lewandowski, Robert, uh, Robert Lewandowski. They see talent that is, in their eyes, obvious, but nobody else is at the table with intent. I'm not saying there's not other, no other clubs at the table, but whether it's Erling Holland or... Um, even I think about, I mean, as a side note, one of the filthiest players that I've, I haven't been able to see a lot of him recently, but one of the filthiest players in the last five or seven years when he's healthy is Usman Dembele. Wow. What? I mean, I'll do it once we get off this call, but some of his uh, plays, his, they call him in America, in American football, they call him splash plays. Some of his sequences, like he's the guy that you would want to fight after the game because he made you look utterly ridiculous but anyways back to my point uh they they got him from ren for i'm not saying for peanuts i'm not saying that uh but they got him at a discount at a marked discount from what they sold him to barcelona for you're telling me that those that there's other clubs that didn't recognize the talent they didn't want they didn't have the money maybe it's a better way of saying it. they didn't want to pay for it pay for his services so those player pol those diamond polishers to me like I so that's Dortmund Red Bull Salzburg um sorry my employees are sleeping for the day uh Red Bull Salzburg does it time and time and time again with center forwards I mean other positions too but whether it's um Erling Holland or uh, Adeyemi or um uh my mind is going blank, but they have many, many different ways of inserting a player. Let me, the, the, I guess the term is blooding a player. They get a player uh, to replace the lead player. It seems like two to three windows before that player is sold. Even when you look at um, uh, the Sesco that they have now, he has any, uh, um, I wish I could check. I don't have Y Scout on, on one of these uh, laptops. I don't know. I don't even know if he passed 1,500 minutes in the Austrian Bundesliga this past season. Yet 
multiple clubs, multiple big clubs were at the table wanting to purchase him. And Freund and Red Bull Salzburg realized that, I mean, yeah, you can realize a very huge um, uh, capital gain, or as they say in Italy, plus Valenza for selling, you know, selling him on. But is that what is best for the player? And ended up selling him to uh, Red, RB Leipzig, which is, I don't, I mean, I don't know what you even call it with them anymore. Uh, the the big brother, if you will. Um, but he's not going till next season. So whether it's uh, Dortmund or Red Bull Salzburg who focus more so on, and we were saying this before we started recording, um, in my research over the past year or so, uh, Red Bull Salzburg, FC Norshalen, and I'm blanking on the other club. It'll, it'll come to me as I keep talking. But those clubs care more about the player. I'm sorry, they care more about the person than the actual player they know they know that that player will come good and again when we talk about player we're talking about teenagers we're not talking about men you know we're not talking about you know 35 year olds or 28 year olds we're talking about teenage we know that those teenagers will come good but they have to make sure that they nurture the person and that is where um whether uh the I think about Athletic Bilbao and they don't get enough credit. Athletic Bilbao, those Basque clubs. So um, if you look at the CIES Observatory, you look at their numbers and who plays academy or youth players from their setup, Athletic Bilbao, Real Sociedad, Osasuna. And Osasuna, I always get distracted by other um, setups or sporting directors, but these are clubs that for the most part um, – you know, we, we don't talk about a lot because they're not challenging uh, Real Madrid or Barcelona or At Atletico Madrid uh, for either the, the cup or the league. Yet they continue to to polish diamonds. So um, I'm, tending, I'm tending to uh, talk in circles here, but at the end of the day, th those player development clubs, they are the ones, um, they are the ones who, give themselves the opportunity to fight with those massive clubs because they are producing talent. And yes, they're making a profit off of those talents when they sell them on, but they're getting talent upstream before, sorry, they're getting talent at the top of the food chain before everybody else knows that. So whether it's um, when you look at athletic Bilbao, when you look at the Williams brothers, they, I, I mean, can you imagine the joy from their academy director who saw those two Williams boys, uh, Nico and Inyaki, 15 years ago, saying, hey, those are going to be first-team players. Not for, you know, Atletico or Real, but for us, for, you know, for Bilbao. That, that takes a level of um, commitment and more so conviction to what you do that is rare in uh, world football. And getting back to your Erlen point at Dortmund, I think it was very pertinent for a piece which I wanted to do on recruitment and player trading because you spoke about it on one of your threads earlier on this week, I believe, David, being that it's one of the best tools of a sporting director now, this talent arbitrage. Could you explain the concept for those which are listening? 
Yeah, yeah, it's it sounds like a big word, but it's really, 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 I mean, it, it's a financial word, but it's very simple. How do we get player X to play for us? And when he gets good enough and he outgrows, his talent out, outgrows us, how do we sell him to a different market, different club, different league for more? Uh, I mean, it, it's a way of, when we look at um, uh, the, the stock market, a lot of people kick themselves that they didn't buy Facebook or Apple or whatever, you know, hot brand name when it first came out. Well, how do you find those stocks? How do you find those fines, those, um, you know, those, dare I say, lottery tickets? You have to be looking, right? You have to be looking. And when you look at player, when you when you dig into player arbitrage, to me, I mean, and I actually did a, a little poll. I think it might have been because within the last two weeks, what is the, the, the general question was, what is the point of player arbitrage to make a profit brand slash identity? Or I want to say it was to to win. And a lot of people said to make a profit because that's the obvious answer. You know, you, you obviously aren't arbitraging if you're. Um, if you're losing money, <laughs> you're you're poorly investing. If that's the case, right? So the the point of player arbitrage, and I'm trying to think of a. I know I've done threads on it. We did that. I'm trying to think of the did one with Elaine Elaine Suter with FC St. Gallen uh, this week. Um, I'll use. We'll use uh, I'll use Bronco. You know what? I'll, I'll keep it simple. We'll do um, FC Northland because that I know that one like the back of my hand. So when you when you look at uh, let's see, they sold uh, Kamaldin Sulemana, Simon Adingra. I think that's it as far as bigger ticket. I mean, some of the other ones have moved. Like uh, well, Ledsi moved this window, but it wasn't. Kudos. Um, it wasn't Kudos. as. Uh, there we go. I knew I was forgetting. Yeah, he moved to Ajax. Caduce. Uh, Caduce moved to Ajax. When you look at those players, those profiles, I mean, I'm saying this with some naive, naivete. For the most part, if you have an 18 or 19-year-old um, African player playing heavy minutes, a lot of minutes in the Danish Superliga, first tier, he's probably pretty good, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's safe to say that he's probably going to be solid. I don't know if he's going to be Ballon, probably not, probably not going to be Ballon d'Or level, but there's a very good chance that he's at least going to perform on a Europa League level or maybe even a Champions League level. So arbitrage, very simple, very simply in recruitment, is saying whether it's through, um, it's more uh, patient and the youth setup and developing players, but it's more obvious when you look at clubs that buy players, we are going to take the upfront hit financial hit of signing this player now. And we are going to put him in our setup. So remember when you asked me, what's the role of a sporting director, the really good sporting directors, if, if they do what I said, a sporting director does not that I'm an expert, but more so if they are the first Lieutenant, of the uh, ownership and the club as far as what do we want to be about in the um, FC Nordsjælland example. So 
a player that they signed, I think it's two seasons, maybe two and a half seasons ago, was Andreas Sheldrup, the Norwegian. I mean, he might be the most baby-faced killer I've seen. Uh, I mean, just pudgy cheeks, floppy hair, 17 years old. Uh, well, I think he's 18 now. They signed him and, you know, kind of went under the radar as far as like, oh, well, he's not um, he's not stellar immediately. However, FC Northland knows that if we can put – and this is where, like I say, if you if you zoom out and you look at the the um, the uh, the what is the word? Um, I just think of the word devastating. The devastating organization of resources. So they sign. Actually, I'll take a step back. I use Simon Adingra as an example because his is a little bit more obvious because he's actually been sold. He's been transferred. Simon comes up through right to dream. They fly him up. He earns his opportunity to play for. Um, uh, they have under 17, under 19, but they he started, I believe, under 19 at uh, FC Northland. They put him under um, Hoffer, who is, I think he was under 19 coach at the time. And then they have Fleming Peterson and they teach him. So one of the key things about Fleming Peterson and FC Northland's strat, uh, strategy as far as developing players, they're not developing players to play Wego do Cusicion or Gegen Pressing or I'm not saying any of those are good or bad. I'm saying more so that they are strategically and data, um, empirical evidence, looking at what works at Champions League level. What works at that level? Like what style of play? What decisions work at that level for each position? So they take Simon Adinger and they mold him into FC Northland's way of playing. If you look at the video for um, Simon Adinger last year, last season, I don't believe that there, and I'm biased because I like him, okay, but I don't believe that there was a match where the right back or the whoever was assigned to him in that right midfield um, contained him for the full 90 minutes or however long he played. And this is as a 19 and 19 turning 20 year old. And you're dealing with a league that is underrated in its physicality and its athleticism on the wings, okay? So, FC Northland, the uh, Hemerson, uh, uh, Mikhail Hemerson was the sporting director at that time. You look at uh, one of the things I do with FC Northland, every time that they say, um, say Simon and Dingra is being promoted to the first team, I look at what the sporting directors and all the coaches said, the managers said. Not because I care necessarily um, about what they're saying, but I'm looking at what they are, what reasons that they're giving for promoting that profile. Because you you start to see the culture behind the the identity, and what you see at FC Northland, you see a you see a defined playing style of quick attacking, attractive football, but then you also see this system that rewards players that buy into what the manager is saying. So you have a club, and you have a sporting director who has this pipeline of talent that consistently produces players that are learning how to play at a higher level who are, and I hate saying this, but let's just, for the, for the sake of illustration, we'll be extreme about it. These players are as close to free as possible, right? Because they're academy players. They're developed players. They're as close to free as you're going to get in the world football setup. And they know that that talent, yes, um, you know, let's just some random Greek 
club like Panathinaikos is is bidding 1.5 million euros for the player when he's 17. You're going you're going to turn down that bid, knowing that you have a player who's worth five, six, seven, eight million euros. That's what arbitrage is. I mean, I know I took the, the scenic route to get there. Arbitrage is knowing that you have a talent of a certain caliber and not selling that player too soon. It's not that you're not going to realize a, a return, but more so understanding that there is a um, there is a sporting benefit for being patient. So when I do Twitter, I do I do Twitter Spaces every Tuesday Tuesday morning here in the states, uh, noon uh, London time. And what I've done the past three Tuesdays is I've done recruitment. I've done like a recruitment uh, diagnostic on the Europa League clubs. The last uh, group we did was, I believe, Group C. And I forget who's in that group, but uh, Ludogorets is in that group uh, from Bulgaria. And when you look at transfer market, is a beautiful, beautiful tool. Because when you look at transfer market, you look at ins and outs, right? And for the most part, Ludogorets uh, transfers um, aren't great. Oh, so let me rephrase that. They're not high ticket ones. There's not like a, a $15 million one and $20 million. You see, 1.2, 1.7, 3.8, 1.2, But then if you continue that thread of where that player goes, that player now, I, I know it's via transfer market. And it's not, you know, you know, necessarily uh, you can't necessarily prove it, but that player is worth double what he was worth match value um, when he was at Ludogorets. And one of the points I made with uh, on the Twitter space is that arbitrage isn't just about make player trading arbitrage is not just about making a profit it's also about understanding that hey we don't really have a great transfer budget but we can overpay initially for talent pay them pay a player more in wages so that we can meet our sporting competitive needs ludogorets and csk sofia are the might be wrong but they they, from what i see are the two best clubs in bulgaria Ludogorets needs to win the league every single year um, financially. They, they need to. They need access to Champions League. They need access to Europa League or it destroys their recruitment model, their club financial viability. So when you know that you can get the best um, left winger uh, from the Israeli league for only – let's say 2 million euros, but then know, know also that you're going to sell him down the line a season or two after you've secured European places. Does it really matter if you make a profit or, or not as much? Not really, because you know that you are continuing the model of making sure that we either A, win the league and, um, you know, get to Europe or you know, we finished second in the league, but we still qualify for a year, at least the European playoffs, Europa League playoffs. So I know that I, you know, I crammed a lot in there, but arbitrage and player trading. Well, to me, arbitrage is, is different and more strategic than player trading. Player trading is really, you know, you're, you're focusing solely on profit, which is fine. That's not good or bad. But arbitrage is saying, hey, how can we be strategically patient or strategically um aggressive to pay for talent before other clubs outbid us it's very intriguing because you're starting to see elements of this creep into the premier league as you have to say teams in the bottom half 
try and seek a competitive advantage. Uh, Lee Dykes, co-director of football this summer at Brentford, spoke about it's now a race for these clubs to find talent quicker than the pro than uh, the big clubs can. And you've seen that in their acquisition of players such as Keane Lewis Potter and even Aaron Hickey. Further afield, what Southampton have done has been absolutely fascinating. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, David. They've hired Joel oh, yeah. as their head of recruitment, previously head of academy recruitment at Manchester City. The acquisitions have been fantastic. Um, Bella Catchup, who's played less than 100 league games before his transfer, already called into the Germany squad. Romeo Lavia and also Say Kumara, who've played combined less than 50 league games of football together, both 18 years of age. So it's really intriguing to see how elements of this may creep into the Premier League, where in the past, like to the, you'd have to say, the average educated football fan, we'd be here speaking about Premier League clubs being lazy with recruitment, being that they can, in fact, afford the opportunity cost. Do you see more clubs adopting what Southampton are currently doing at the moment? Yes, without a doubt. Now, what's going to separate the imposters from the uh, the true believers, if you will, is conviction. So no matter how well or how terrible Southampton does, that's that's what they do. They've been doing it since Les Reed. I mean, they've been doing it for decades, right? Now, in, in, this, in this environment, and I'm saying this and I feel, it makes me feel old to say this, but also um, it makes me pr- feel privileged to have this point of view yeah, I used to. So I, when I first started watching, rewatching uh, football again more seriously, I watched almost exclusively because that's what I what we had was uh, Serie A, Italy. Italian football is not for the faint of heart. They, <laughs> you want to talk about um, pragmatism and just unvarnished candor? Um, sporting directors do not talk like if they're not Juventus, Roma. Lazio, Napoli, AC or Inter Milan, or um, ah, what's the other one? Uh, Fiorentina, the Seven Sisters. If you're not one of those clubs, you're talking about avoiding relegation. From the first weekend, from the first match day, you're talking about we just don't want to avoid, we want to avoid relegation. So you're going to spend 37 weeks talking about avoiding relegation, right? But they also know that if they get relegated, that stream of income can make the club disappear in six weeks tops. Right. Just as far as not being able to have the licenses to be a football club. So when you talk about Southampton or even you start to see smacks of it with Newcastle and how they're recruiting. Um, Wolves has said Overhampton has said as much. Um, it becomes. It becomes a, a race to get talent sooner, which is good, which is good as far as being um, proactive and getting talent. At a look, and I'm gonna say this, and I'm just, you know, I know how it sounds, but it it, it needs to be said. Uh, so there's two parts of what I'm about to say. Football is a lot like business. People hate saying that, you know, they they, they hate hearing that. They want football to be a childhood romantic, um, recreational activity. World football, as we see it, is not that. I'm not saying it doesn't elicit great memories and it is not entertaining. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that if you are running a club that is producing and spending multi-million dollar euros or dollars or whatever currency that you want, you have to run it at a level that is coherent. 
That's the first part. The second part, which is harder for some people to understand or swallow, is that if you want your club to be good, you need to get players at a lower rate than what they are worth. There's only three or four. So, and, you know, the, the number might be small. I think there's three clubs. There's three clubs that can pay whatever the amount is for a player. Manchester City, Real Madrid, and PSG. Insert your negative comments about where football is going however you want, okay? You, you be my guest. But that being said, the other few hundred clubs in European football, it is in your best mid to long-term interest to pay less for talent than to pay more for talent to get onto your team. It's, it's just simple math. It's simple math. However, uh, what tends to happen is whatever is popular, whether it's data or, um, you know, getting players from a certain region, a lot of people are going to replicate it and copy it, which, again, there's, I, I don't see that as being negative or positive. It's just how things work. We copy what works, right? It's modeling. However, the clubs that stick to their identity, and that's what's key. What is your identity? Southampton, they do it a certain way. They've been doing it a certain from Walcott and um, Gareth Bale to uh, I can't even think of who this is. Some of the guys you, that you mentioned this uh, this window, they're going to keep doing it, and they're going to. Re- uh, one of my favorite sayings is from an NBA basketball coach. I forget. I think he's with the Indiana Pacers now, and he essentially said, "Hey, we're going to do what we do, and we're going to do it hard. <laughs> we're just going to do it in." in repetition ad infinitum because it's what we do. I don't know if Wolves or Newcastle or any of those clubs, I mean, even if you go down to championship level, I don't know if those clubs are going to stick to it. You know why? Because I don't think it's in their identity. I think it's good for the sport overall to to move in that direction. But one of the hardest, well, it's not really hard, one of the clearest delineating uh, opportunities for a club is they have enough money to sign, as they say in um, in Italy, Mr. X, Player X. Do you sign that player just because you have the ability to? Or do you sign players only because they fit your playing style and your club identity? Most clubs don't do the latter. They do the former. And that is when or why you put yourself in a position. And, you know, I'll use Everton as an example. I mean – I'm not uh, Mr. Premier League. I'm not Everton or Liverpool-based, but I was kind of surprised that they signed uh, Rafa Benitez to be their manager. If only because of it was going against what they said they were trying to do. And, oh, by the way, he coached, he managed Liverpool. <laughs> that part was the, uh, the white elephant in the room. However, again, if you have the money and you have the opportunity – if you don't have an identity, you don't always make the best decision. So I, I, I think it's good, but then I also don't know if I, – I mean, I, I would be shocked if, you know, 10% of those clubs who are moving in that direction keep or stick to it. Yeah, and ultimately, I mean, it's going to be one of the key facets on which a sporting director's tenure will be evaluated, David. Um. I mean, one heuristic I always come back to is that on success. And it's something which Fabio Paratici, the current Tottenham Spartan director, mentioned during his time at Juventus, being 
the best one, the best supporting director isn't the one that makes zero mistakes. It's the one that makes the fewest. Now, how can we exactly and fairly evaluate a sporting director's tenure? Ah, this is a great question. This is a great question simply because um, you can't. You really can't. Unless unless you want to you want to give them five years and judge everything. When I say everything, I mean are we paying our vendors on time? Are we paying, are we, it's not paying, are we, are we, um, how, how are our operations and facilities? What have we improved? You know, like when we see sporting, I don't know, it's different from club to club, from country to country, league to league, but sporting directors touch every facet of a club. So yes, they will ultimately, ultimately be judged on their recruitment. However, uh, you, you know, like, to me, I try not to even look at at a sporting director until they sat in the chair for two to three seasons. And when I say sat in the chair, if I want to make a thread or evaluate them and they've only been there two or three years, I am very careful to not talk about anything other than the project. Because it's not it to me, it's it it, it is almost um it's, it's hypocritical, it's very hypocritical to, to try to evaluate somebody on the big picture when we're only focusing on a snapshot, right? So if you look at, and uh, <laughs> this is probably a, a very terrible, terrible example. Imagine a sporting director's uh, career or timeline in a club as the picture, I think it's Michelangelo, The Last Supper, right? If we... <laughs> Bear with me, bear with me. So if we look at the far right, wherever Jesus is in the picture, as it being like, you know, at least four to five seasons in, if we just look at one window uh, and we want to grade transfer, just as far as, even if you try to do it um, fairly and just look at need, roster need, squad need versus what was brought in, to me, it's heresy. Like there's, there's, you're only, you're essentially saying, hey, Michelangelo, great job painting that picture. I only want Judas. Like <laughs> I don't want, I don't want the other twelve people in the picture. I just want this window, or I just want this season where we won the cup. To me, how you begin, because it really is, it, it, it's almost. Um, I'm not. I'm not into accounting. That's for the uh, the brave souls. Uh, but it's almost like wanting to audit a company for ten years. A four. I mean, I don't know what it's. It's wanting to audit a company, a or a government um, department over ten years, because there are so many different facets of why decisions were made, and when decisions were made, and what funds were available. And what, like, what I don't want to call it opposition, but what was the the um, uh, what was the climate that that decision was made in? That we are essentially making judgments. We're 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 judging a role or a person with complete information when that person had incomplete information at the time. So, how, to answer your question, how I would begin is, you know what. Let's um let's try to 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 break uh break this down as diametrically as we can. What is the project like? What what is the stated goal of bringing in uh sporting director X? Is it to develop players, or is it to 
win games. Okay. Or win matches. Sorry. Okay. So that's, let's just say it, it is to win matches. Okay. So um, let's, let's knock out the non-visible stuff first. How are facilities, how are our um, employees as far as physios, teachers, man, like how, how have we done with that? Okay. People don't, people don't normally get to see behind that curtain. So we won't focus too much on that because those pretty straightforward to agree. Recruitment wise. Okay. Who did we bring in to fill in the roles in the, in the squad and how did they perform? Because at the end of the day, when you're the sporting director, when you're the leader, you're, you are culpable. You are accountable for how other people perform that you brought in. Fair, unfair. That's just how it is. So if you needed a striker, if you needed goals, and you brought in four strikers and none of them scored more than or them combined scored 20 goals over four years, you failed, right? I mean, simply, you failed in that regard, most likely. So um, that's how – hold on. Um, okay. You still hear me? We're still good? Perfect. So, uh, project, what's our goal? What did we actually do? And then, this is the part nobody wants to, to give enough credence to. How long? How long did we give him versus how long did he get? I mean, I'm thinking of, uh, I'm trying to think of a more obvious example. Um, Look, oh, unbelievable, let's, let's, unbelievable case that? study. Unbelievable case study, which you've done in the past week. Edu at Arsenal. How quickly have things turned for him in relation to the fan base, in relation to what's being said at the media? Yeah, perfect set. I didn't even think, <laughs> I didn't even think about it because I'm so close to it. I mean, I could, it's not that I'm popular on Twitter. I don't know what that even means, but some of the DMs I get, I just, I wonder like what I'm missing. I mean, I, I have DMs of people calling for Edu's head this winter transfer window. I mean, I can go. I mean, I won't do it because I don't need to. It doesn't do anything for me. Uh, but I could screenshot them. And, and now, if that person said that exact same thing, they would be shouted down on, on, you know, on Twitter. And at the end of the day, the number one metric, because it screens out a lot of the noise, is, how long have you been in the chair? You know, when I looked at Monchi, you know, I, has he failed? Sure. Has he made a lot of mistakes? Absolutely. He's still there, right? He's still there. And no matter, I mean, they, I think before they went into, sorry, right after the transfer window closed, they had taken one point out of nine possible. Okay. So, for the sake of being fair, it was terrible. Like, I mean, that's terrible, right? But one of his lines in his um, uh, his press conference to close out the transfer window, and he said it in his way, which some people see it as arrogance. Other people say, oh, no, that's just how he is. I don't know him personally, but I've, I've read enough interviews. I've watched him, him enough live on video to know and to see how he said it when he said it in Spanish. He basically said, look, like, uh, one at one point in nine is unacceptable. We all know that. However, 
it will be worth it when it counts. And he said it in this nonchalant slash um, you lot do this every other year type of like response <laughs> that I just started, I laughed at because. Well, look, for me, the lines between success and failure in football and even more so, especially in a role which is so publicly scrutinized as a sporting director is so, they're so fine. For me, they're two sides of the same coin. I always liken this, David, to the invisible tug of war. Football is essentially an invisible tug of war between short-term wants and long-term needs. And it's it's your durability to balance both in the medium to long-term. Yeah, yeah. It's um, Rasmus Ankerson uses the analogy, and I have an, I have an eye watch, so it doesn't work. Um, but he uses the analogy of... Um, the sporting director is the um, is the minute hand, okay? The the manager on a watch. So the, on a watch, old school analog watch. The second hand is the manager. He, I mean, every three or four days, he's he's getting judged on talent as far as what we have, what we're doing. Did we win or did we lose or did we draw? Okay. The owner is the hour hand. The owner is, hey, this is where I want to be. How are you spending or wasting my money? Rinse, repeat. Where are we going? The sporting director is the minute hand. He has to, I mean, he has to know long term what is going on. But he also, like, every minute is built up of seconds, right? I mean, that sounds really dumb to say it out loud. But, like, he has to, like, there has to be result. There has to be tangible building blocks in what they're doing. He has to be able to see, okay, where is this headed? And those short-term wants are uh, i mean i don't want to say that they're devils i just want to say that there has to be i mean i know i said at the beginning that the sporting director is the lieutenant uh first lieutenant of the ownership however um the the owner the the ownership and or the board is the most important part i mean that is the the um that is the black box and black box i use that reference as far as for for planes, for major aircraft, uh, they have a black box that can read. I mean, they're almost in, they're basically indestructible. And it records a conversation with the pilot, the flight crew, uh, air traffic control. And they can find out, you know, if the plane lost power on one side. They can find all the information about what happened before the tragedy, before the accident. Why am I using that an analogy? Ownership in football, ownership in sports, there, we don't know 99% of what happens, right? Like, we never will. <laughs> we never will. And I'm not saying that needs to change. What I'm saying is that you only see the benefit of legit, functional, and visionary ownership by what the sporting director is allowed to do. Like, what, like, what are we doing recruitment? How are our facilities are the players that go through our academy who don't make it to the first team, are they good people? Are they getting their degrees? Are they passing their exams? What are we doing in the community? You know, um, again, I mean, I, I joke about this, but I'm, you know, I write about sporting directors, but I'm really writing about owners because the, the owner is using that sporting director as a foil, as a shield. And that's what I mean. It's, I knew we were going to talk about this again, but uh, when we were recording, but that's why I believe, like, you know, at Chelsea, Todd Bowley, he, he, he cannot stay in that seat 
much longer for his forget about him for the club's benefit. He needs to put somebody in that chair because he needs to be able to be the hour hand. He needs to be able to see where can we take this club in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. He does not need to be looking at right backs in Bundesliga 2 or in Liga. Like, if he wants to, that's fine, but that should not be his primary function, you know? So, at least in my opinion. So, yeah, short-term wants versus long-term needs. Um, my favorite spin on that is the the future whispers and the present screams. It screams, we need a left back, we need a left back, we need a left back, we need a left back. What is the future saying? We need a better goalkeeper coach. And, you know, we need we need better nutrition for our academy. Those are whispers, right? Those aren't going to be headlines. I can imagine Todd Bowley's having a lot of fun at the moment watching videos of Usman Dembele on his new Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't mind to see him start the bridge someday, David. I tell you that thing. Um, you know what, though, as we begin to bring this podcast to close, David, I mean, it's been very enlightening for myself to learn more about the role of sport director, as I'm sure it has been to others, and the huge role which recruitment uh, plays within that. However, I mean, this future role of a sport director, do you see it evolving into something which has currently happened in FC Nordseeland, or do you see it altering a different way? No, you. I, I mentioned it earlier, and you just brought it up again. I see if a club, it's becoming a lot like, brace yourself, business, big business. There is no way, there is no way you can be the owner, founder, recruiter, HR, um, IT. You, you can't, you can't do it all. Let me rephrase that. You can't do it all well, right? So if I'm looking at a level of a club, we won't use Chelsea, um, but uh, say, uh, well, I mean, any Premier League team is pretty much in the same same category. Um, I would have so a top five league. I would I would not be surprised in the next season or less. You start to see clubs who are intent, especially if you want to get talent before your rivals. You you need more information. The number one job in my opinion, of a sporting director. We didn't, I don't know if we got to this or not. The number one job of a sporting director is to gather information. You you have to be able to know, okay, there's a class of 2006s um, that is just, we need to get on top of whoever their agents are or their families are. We need to get them in the fold and know who they are now. We need to start making those networks now. 2006s are what, 16, you know, 15, 16, 17, roughly. If you're on a Premier League club level, you know for the most part, you're not even signing that player to a win. 2026? Like when they're out of the level physically and athletically and, and, you know, football-wise of a level to be a first-team caliber. But that's five, four or five years out. But you have to be thinking that far out. The only way that you can even be talking about 2006 and 2007 is if you have that information. Like, make no mistake about it. Like, there's no way that you can make consistently good recruitment decisions without information, whether that's data-based or old-school scout-based or video-based. 
in my opinion, you need and want it all. You want to have as much, the more information that you have on anything, in theory, the better decision that you can make. So to answer your question directly, I mean, in some clubs, I mean, Ralph Ragnick has stated this. In Germany, they're already doing it. I mean, you have director of football, then you have your, let's just give a, a, a generic title as far as youth academy recruitment. Then you have your, your head of uh, scouting, if you will. And then depending on the magnitude or the specificity, if that's the word, of what you're doing, you add in another person who is essentially the assistant or the, I don't know what title you want to use, but assistant sporting director. And he is, dare I say, the conduit. I can't really see it. You have a sporting director, then you have your assistant sporting director, and then you have the little tree with the youth, the scouting, and then data or player analysis or whatever. So you have essentially four people who take, who are not the sporting director or who are not uh, solely in charge of recruitment, but they recruit upwards vertically and they push information to the sporting director. How in the world, and this is where, again, I'll just use Todd Bowley as an example. How in the world are you going to be looking at profit and loss statements for a multi-billion dollar, or sorry, multi-billion euro organization um, at nine o'clock and then at, whoops, operator error. And then at at 10, 15, you pull up Instat and Scout, and you're looking at left backs in the Bundesliga, in France, and in Italy. You should not be doing that. I mean, again, that's not to be critical. If he is doing it, I'm just saying, like, it, that you you want, you need, especially of a club of that magnitude, when the higher up you go in the food chain as far as football teams, top five leagues, the less margin for error you have. So I haven't found it yet. Uh, and when I find it, I'm tweeting it. But um, – there was, a, there was a conversation, I forget which sporting director it was. Uh, it was Italian, it might have been Beppe Marotta, um, but he was talking to Florentino Perez. And Florentino, for what it's worth, uh, he, he's a mastermind. It's annoying. It's annoying. It's very, very annoying. But he, <laughs> he has, he's figured out what works at Real Madrid, and we're, we're sitting on year like 27 of it. It's annoying. I mean, just. It's simple, but it, he they they execute. And he said, "Hey, like, why didn't you want to sign? Uh, you could have signed. I think it was Pogba. He was like, you you could have signed Paul Pogba when he was 21, 22 for 15, 20 million euros. Why didn't you sign him?" And Florentino laughed, said, "No, no, no, no. I I see what you're saying, my friend, but I'd rather pay 60 million with certainty. Like." Think about that. Like the higher up you go, you cannot miss. You cannot miss when you bring in Lukaku, when you bring in Jorginho, when you bring in Giroud, well, whoever, you cannot miss. If you're playing in a Danish Superliga and you're all bored and you want to bring in uh, Anosika Ementa, look up that name. He's like, you know, one, one meter 98 and you want to see if he can score for you. By all means, try them out. But you cannot trot out. So you cannot trot out uncertainty at Stamford Bridge. That's why those guys get paid. Multi I mean, they get paid very, very well. They also get fired very, very quickly if those results do not follow. And David, I mean, overall, 
it's been a pleasure to follow your pathway. Um, you're still on this journey of procuring more knowledge and realizing there's more wisdom to be attained out there. But as someone who's gone out like yourself and who's pursued their interests, who's scratched that itch, who has developed a niche for themselves within the football industry, what advice would you have for those listening that would even be the slightest bit inspired to do something similar? Yeah, great question. Uh, what I would say, and this is not, um, I'm saying this with no spin. I'm just saying it because I had, I had my doubts and then they were quickly foiled. They were quickly, you know, shown as being false. If you want to do it, like do you would be surprised who is on the other end of your tweets or your likes on Twitter. Um, it's very easy. I'm just going to use focus on Twitter just because that's the, I mean, I have LinkedIn. I need to do more on LinkedIn, but um, you can't be afraid. It, you can't be afraid to make contact or to make, I'm going to say a statement or whatever. The first bit of advice that I was given is from Andrew Wilkinson. I forget. He was, he was with Heron Bane. I forget who he's with now. Um, but this was at, actually, this was on Instagram, funny enough. Uh, it wasn't even on Twitter. But I was like, hey, like, I'm really, I don't know what I want to do, but like, I keep seeing these players um, across Europe and I see the talent and I see what club that they would fit in. This is well before sporting directors, right? I was like, I see the talent. I see what clubs that they would fit into. And I see the financial part of it. But like, man, like, I just, I don't want to be wrong, you know, like I don't want to share it on Twitter or on Instagram and just be like, oh, no, 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 no. I said that six months ago or what. I don't want to I don't want to do that. And it was like, mate, you got to figure it out, mate. Like he goes, if you don't believe in yourself, why would a club believe in you? And I was like, oh, wow. So and it's the truth. If you don't believe in what you're saying, if you don't believe in what you found, if you don't believe in your work, why would anybody? I mean, I don't care if they're in their mom's basement. Um, you know, and they're no, let me not go. I don't want to be too funny, but like I don't care if they are a they don't have a job or they don't have anything legitimate about what they do, but they just troll on Twitter. If you don't believe in what you have found or what you see, nobody else will. Nobody else wants to because you're the only one who has anything to lose. So for me, um, I think the hardest the, and it wasn't even that hard, but I thankfully had had the, pre, the previous experience with the 11 questions book and whatnot. I kept telling myself, like, man, this sporting director thing, nobody wants to hear. Like, this is just me. This is just my obsession, right? Like, sporting directors, general managers, recruitment, this is me. Even some of the uh, the guys who have came before me who are bigger than I am, honestly, bigger than what I want to be, whether it's uh, Tim Keach or any of these guys, they don't post what I post. Right. Like, I mean, they talk about it, but they don't post as much as I post about sporting directors and recruitment. And I just remember earlier this year, like, I don't know if I really want to do this. Like, I, like as far as like post about this, because I don't who cares. Right. Everybody wants to talk about the players. You know, they don't want to talk about Monchi. Like, you know, what, what, what. And I just I remember I sat on it for maybe a week and change. And I said, you know what? No, like. So my first my first post uh, was Monchi, and I didn't even do it. I, I mean, I was lazy. All his, his uh, Monchi's ma master class um, during COVID, uh, the COVID lockdown, 
is all in Spanish with subtitles. And I just I just made a po uh, a thread a thirteen tweet thread about it. And I just remember posting like, all right, well, I, if it works, great. If it doesn't, great. Came back like two or three hours later, and I'm like, what? Like ding 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 ding. Like my phone is blowing up, and I just remember telling myself like, okay, smart guy, you're not smart. You just need to focus on what makes you tick. If you focus on what makes you tick, there'll be people who want nothing to do with you, which is fine. I don't, you know, I'm not forcing anybody to follow my stuff. And then there's also going to be people who have been waiting for you. And this is the key part of what I'm going to say. You have to believe in what you see and what you found, but also you are doing a disservice to those people who have been waiting for you to share what you see and you're not sharing it. You have to share it. If you don't share it, then all that good content, that good perspective, that almost, you know, it could be altering, life altering, club altering, player altering perspective that you have that you didn't share, it dies with you and your doubts, you know? So um, I don't want to be overly inspirational, but I just want to say, like, you, it, there's, to me, there's nothing worse. My whole athletic career was based off of one haunting thought. I didn't want to have grandkids and one of my grandsons, uh, us watching a football, American football game and saying, grandpa, papa, those guys are fast. Did you ever play football? No, I don't want like that. That haunted me. That haunted me. Like, no, no, I wanted, not that I wanted to be known for playing football. I want to be able to answer my grandson and said, yes, I had a lot of fun. And for him to say, really, you played football, you know? That might be ego-driven, but it's more so to say, like, I don't want the regret of not doing something. And for those of us, those of you who want to get into anything, it could be recruitment, it could be coaching or managing. If you don't, if you don't step into it, who's, nobody's going to do it for you. I'm not. I'm going to do. I'm going to do what what works and what makes me tick. I'm not going to wait for somebody or have a cattle call say hey does anybody is anybody out there interested in sporting directors i'm trying to start xyz and it, it, i wish it worked that way but it doesn't it's some fantastic advice to close and even more and brilliant and fantastic podcast so many lessons to be learned to be certain which i will be certainly listening back to for a second and third time and um, for those of which that enjoyed listening to your content dave um, where's the best to find you on Twitter? So that's uh, at, at, if I could say it, at undervalue, no E at the end of the value. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's funny. I, I always think of what I should do next and then I get tired and then I look at what is working. And I'm like, okay, I still have another 10, 15 years of doing this because it, it comes easy to me. Um, but that's where to find my best stuff. And when, I say, when I say easy, just as far as thinking of what to share next, putting it on a thread or sharing it is hard as far as, you know, details. But I mean, we, we didn't even talk about a lot of other aspects of sporting directors. And yeah, those, those are, yeah, that's for another time. Maybe there's something there for a round two. It's an open invite. <laughs> it's, it's accepted in advance. So. David, thanks so much for coming on. Connor, I appreciate you having me on. Look forward to the next time.